Welcome. I'm John Hart, the co-founder of C3 Solutions, the conservative coalition of climate solutions, and the editor of our news magazine, C3. I'm also the executive director of our sister organization, C3 Action. Welcome to another edition of Right Voices, our video and podcast interview series, where we highlight conservative leaders in the climate and energy debate. Today, we're honored to be joined by Representative Garrett Graves, who's serving his third term as the representative of Louisiana's 6th Congressional District. He's a member of the Committee on Natural Resources and Transportation, and he's also the point person for the GOP's Energy, Climate, and Conservation Task Force. Congressman, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks. Great to be here. So let's let's jump right in and talk about you know this the, the climate and energy debate as as we've discussed before uh, has really evolved you know dramatically over the past five years. It used to be that if you were a conservative and you talked about climate, people would scratch their heads and kind of accuse you of being a socialist or somehow enabling the Green New Deal. And and really, members like you, I give you a lot of credit for flipping that script and saying actually, if you're a conservative, this is an issue you ought to run toward and not from. And and I really commend what what the minority leader McCarthy has done too to do assemble this task force, you know. And it's very easy as a conservative to beat up on the Green New Deal. The, the Green New Deal is we could talk about all the flaws in it, and it's important to highlight the flaws. Uh, but it's also important to define, I think, what we're for as a movement. And uh, so I wanted to give you the opportunity just to talk about, you know. How do you see the the debate? How has it changed? And what are the key principles that you're trying to advance with the, the task force project? Well, John, I think you got it exactly right when you said that, uh, that that the flipped has entirely, or excuse me, the script has entirely been flipped and that uh, we're, we're in this situation where uh, it's actually been Republican or conservative solutions that have resulted in the lower emissions that have resulted in the more affordable energy that have resulted in the U.S. becoming energy independent. It, in when you look at some of the solutions like Green New Deal, those are the very policies that have actually resulted in higher emissions that have resulted in the biggest driver in cost of living increases or unaffordability. In fact, right now, one in every four Americans are in this situation where they're having to choose among paying for food, paying for energy, or paying for groceries, uh, or paying for medicine. I mean, just in this really, really awful situation right now. And again, the biggest driver here is, is the fact that energy is unaffordable because folks have moved in this direction of trying to force folks into energy technologies that either aren't ready or there hasn't been an appropriate plan for them. So we've been able to actually uh, develop and been able to communicate a U.S.-based energy strategy that's based on our resources, not those of Russia, China, or other countries, one that results in a greater reduction in emissions while maintaining the affordability of energy. And so, um, you know, you said it exactly right when you talked about the fact that years ago, you know, this was an issue that conservatives would often run from, but it's been amazing just looking back at the strategies that have actually been most successful in reducing emissions and ensuring affordability of energy. And it's actually been the very solutions that conservatives have been pushing. Yeah. And, and on one of those points, I don't know if you remember, but we, we were at a dinner at, uh, in Glasgow, Scotland at the COP meeting. And and you made a very articulate uh, case uh, where you described some of what how the U.S. has actually led the way on emissions reduction. Do you want to just take a minute and explain some of what that what you mean by that, and and specifically the technology of fracking 
and how that enabled us to provide a leadership role uh, really globally in the, in the area of emissions reduction. Yeah, it, it's, it, it may seem counterintuitive, but one of the biggest components of our emissions reduction has actually been the transition to cleaner U.S. natural gas. Um, now, look, even the Biden administration is projecting that we're going to have a 50% growth in global energy demand, 50% from where we are today. And so rather than you know pretending as though we're going to develop enough uh, energy technology, new energy technology to come in and address all that, um, we've got to be realistic. The Biden administration shows that there's going to be an up to an 80% increase in natural gas demand in developing countries, up to 58% increase in natural gas demand in developed countries. And so in looking backwards, how has the United States led the world in reducing emissions, beating the next seven emissions reducing countries combined over an extended period of time? It has been, again, that transition to natural gas. And so we've got to ensure that our strategy is realistic and data-based and that it is focused on the realistic global growth in energy demand. And so it, it doesn't make sense for us to just put all of these requirements, restrictions, regulations, and higher costs on Americans whenever it has been proven that when you do that, it actually results in, in higher emissions in other countries. So what we've got to be doing is looking at the success of the United States and our natural gas transition and how we've deployed renewables in areas where they make sense and how those technologies can complement one another, and then ensure that we're not just continuing to do it in the United States, but most importantly, that we're doing it around the world. Because we're watching right now as China is coming out and building more and more coal-fired power plants. So why in the world would you impose restrictions at higher costs than Americans when global emissions are going up because of what other countries are doing? So let's take that affordable U.S.-based resource that's cleaner and apply those successes to other countries where we can truly bring down global emissions and we can do it at a much better cost or address the affordability issue because um, you're not going to be able to force these other countries to come in and say, yeah, hey, we want you to take this technology. It's going to be two, three, four times as expensive as you're paying today because the other countries will not ever take it. And so um, this is a way of ensuring global emissions come down, which, of course, is the only way that you can reduce greenhouse gas concentrations and hopefully avoid some of these worst case scenarios we've seen in the out years. Yeah you've, yeah, you've touched on a couple of really critical points I want to circle back on is the is the energy supply and demand kind of one economics 101 that is often missed in this debate. And then the, and really and also the global nature of CO2. But but just to give people an overview of some of the, the, the pillars that you're working on, just to put this in the framework, uh there are six, and correct me if these have been updated, but I've got unlock American resources, let America build, innovation with a purpose, beat China and Russia. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Conservation with a purpose and building resilient communities. So that's a that's a the kind of the broad framework. And then I want to I want to focus a little bit on this global energy and demand question because uh, and get your reaction to what uh, what Putin did recently. Well, allegedly is that the Russians actually sabotaged the Nord Stream pipeline. And 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 my my view on that, I'd be curious to get your take, is that that was. Putin views global energy policy as a weakness of the West to exploit because we don't have this common sense supply and demand 101 understanding that you just ex explained very clearly. And so in some ways, you know, Putin doesn't need to sabotage American pipelines because we're doing that ourselves. You know, we've got members of Congress who don't who don't want to build a Keystone pipeline. And 
and and conservatives are just we just can't understand and and not just conservatives but regular Americans are not for that they don't understand why we can't build infrastructure why we can't build uh or access our own natural resources when we're doing it in a way that's a lot cleaner um can you can you just respond to that and and give me your take yeah it 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 doesn't make sense john we have we are no longer making decisions based on climate science energy science data and and so what's happened is this has become this overly emotional issue and you're exactly right Vladimir Putin has gone out there and, and you know, allegedly, and we'll wait and see what the investigation yields, but but allegedly blown up pipelines, which then is just spewing methane and other emissions out into the into the environment. You can look at what has happened in, in Europe, in Germany, for example, where they're shutting down nuclear power plants, and then it's causing them to go to uh, dirtier fuels to to backfill that. You can go and look at what's happened in in the UK, where they have tried to migrate entirely to wind, and now they're paying four times the cost in some cases for gasoline. In some cases, paying I think I've seen numbers as high as like ten times the cost for for natural gas. Why in the world would we go down those pathways? Where, as you've said, we're we're out there not looking at the balance between supply and demand of energy. Um, so so in the United States, you mentioned the Keystone Pipeline. Jen Psaki, who was the White House spokesperson for, for uh, the, the Biden administration, she even came out and said that the energy that was being produced, that was going to be uh, transported by the Keystone Pipeline, it's already being produced, which means it's being transported by things like trains and other things that are less safe, by things that have higher chance of of emitting and and actually cause emissions through the transportation at a higher rate than a pipeline. I mean, these policies, they don't make sense. A pipeline is the safest way to transport. It has lower emissions associated with it. it. It just, the policies that are being pushed, and I can't say this enough, because we're no longer tethered to uh, science and data, decisions are being made in Europe that are causing higher emissions, that are giving more leverage to Russia, that are making energy absolutely unaffordable, that are weakening NATO and the economy of these important European allied countries. Why, you know, looking at how this is played out in this country, why in these other countries, why in the world would we would we say, oh yeah, we want to do that. We're going to follow exactly what they've done in Germany, what they've done in the UK. It just, it doesn't make sense. And so that's why we're trying to spend time educating people about the facts, bringing data to the table, demonstrating how projects like the Keystone Pipeline actually result in lower emissions and safer at a safer environment rather than what uh, the, these rumors have have gone out there and, and, and really proliferated these false narratives that that, that a pipeline that, like that is going to be more dangerous. It just doesn't make sense. And we're making decisions that are really reckless in terms of the U.S. environment and U.S. economy. Yeah, and it seems that, that the, the Biden administration really is, is in many ways bowing to pressure from the far left wing of their party, that Democrats, you know, the media likes to focus on Republican divisions. And, you know, there's always a lot of psychodrama in politics. Uh, <laughs> and that's just the way it is. Uh, uh, but on the left, there's a very, very deep and uh, uh, chasm, really, between some of the more moderate members and the extreme uh, so-called environmentalists that aren't really protecting the environment, where you've got Bernie Sanders having this everything but fossil fuel strategy. And again, back to this inner, this sort of supply and demand 101 that, that you're driving home here is, uh, you know, the Biden, when the Biden administration goes to Riyadh or Saudi Arabia or, or asks other countries 
to increase fossil fuel production, that hurts. Why are they helping dictators instead of American domestic energy producers? And has has the Biden administration reached out to you? Uh, because you're you're one of the leading voices on climate and energy. And I think there's a lot of common ground in how you're describing the risk. You're not you're not an alarmist, but you're clearly not a quote climate denier. Have there been any discussions or have they reached out to you, Congressman, to to come together on on some of these policies? I have met with folks from Department of State. I've met with uh, folks from Department of Energy, including the Secretary of Energy when she came down to Louisiana. I, it just, John, the disconnect is so amazing. Uh, you know, and I'll give you an example. Um, you know, the, the Secretary of Energy came down to one of our strategic petroleum reserve sites, and I was talking to her about the need to, to address this imbalance with supply and demand that, that, that you've been talking about. And when we discussed it, she said, well, there, there's, not a, there's not a need for new energy production. Like, Madam Secretary, we're standing at the Strategic Petroleum Reserve where y'all have released hundreds of millions of barrels of oil because there's insufficient supply. How can you sit here and say that there's not an imbalance? Those two things can't exist at the same time. And, and also explaining to her that if you look at emissions per unit of energy, some of the cleanest energy in the world is the energy we have in the United States. And, and uh, look, our National Energy Technology Labs uh, did a study a few years ago showing that, for example, if we could have had our European friends use U.S. gas, uh, liquefied natural gas delivered to Europe, as, a pair, as compared to Russian gas, um, the Russian gas has a 41% higher emissions life cycle than, than U.S. gas. So you could have done two things. You could have uh, decreased the amount of funds or leverage that Vladimir Putin had uh, by, by buying his natural gas, and you could have resulted in lower emissions. One projection that I saw indicated it was about a 218 million ton reduction in emissions if we had simply replaced the year's worth of natural gas uh, using U.S. gas versus Russia. 218 million tons of emissions reductions. So it could have been a win-win for our NATO allies. It could have been a win for the global environment. And so, you know, I, I just I can't say this enough, John, the, the recklessness and the irresponsibility that's out there right now with folks just blindly like Bernie Sanders making these statements about how we're not going to use fossil fuels. Look, it's just unrealistic. It's not based on the data. And we've even been able to demonstrate how uh, new technologies are allowing us to use things like natural gas. There's a power project in Texas uh, called Net Power. They're making uh, generating electricity from natural gas. They're, they're using this new uh, combustion technology and also doing sequestration with it in, in Texas to where it has net zero emissions. It is market rate prices for electricity, and it's based on a U.S. resource, natural gas. I mean, why in the world would you abandon or bury technologies like that that, that allow us uh, to, to produce energy that is net zero emissions based on a U.S. resource? It's just it's mind boggling what's happened right now. And I've said it three times. I'm going to say it again. This really is reckless and irresponsible for us to continue doing this uh, because all it's doing is is handing leverage to China uh, because they're the ones who make the solar panels and batteries and others. And we're going to go from Russian energy dependence to Chinese energy dependence. Shame on us if we if we put ourselves in that situation. Yeah. And I think what, what the left doesn't doesn't understand or they just misconstrue is that is that when, when you describe and other members of Congress describe the need to expand domestic energy production, they 
they view that as, oh, that's just more oil and gas rhetoric from the right. But what the argument we're actually making is that when you have economic freedom, when you have an all of the above energy strategy that leads to energy abundance and independence and security, you create economic growth that enables the development and deployment of all these other cleaner technologies. That's just the way the world works and has for forever in terms of economics. And, and we actually did a report on this called Free Economies or Clean Economies, where we showed that countries that em- embrace economic freedom are, on average are twice as clean as countries that don't. It, so, it's amazing. And I'll add another statistic to that, John. The, the, the Obama administration had something called the Clean Power Plan, where they were trying to uh, force energy companies to use certain technologies to reduce emissions by 30 percent by 2030. So they're going to reduce emissions 30 percent by 2030. The, during the Trump administration, they came in and took all the handcuffs off. They said, you don't have to meet the requirement. But most importantly, we're not going to restrict you on the technologies you use. You use. Do you know that 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 they actually exceeded the goal that President Obama set for 2030 in 2019. I mean, so just you're, you're exactly right. Your report reinforces what we've seen over and over and over again, that that let innovators innovate. There's going to always be so much more innovative, so much more creative than government and, and achieving these multiple wins. And we've got to stop trying to force markets in directions that they don't want to go or can't go. Well, and, and one of the priorities of, of the, the task force and, and a lot of your colleagues is permitting reform. So, and, you know, last week uh, there was a bill that was on the on the floor. Uh, the Senator Manchin negotiated uh, kind of a permitting deal that that a vote in exchange for his previous support of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which, again, is not it's quite, quite an Orwellian term for a bill that uh, expands IRS agents and and a lot of other things that have nothing to do with uh, uh, combating inflation. Uh, but permitting reform is an area, really is an area of bipartisan agreement. And I, you know, my take on this bill is it was more of kind of permitting a name only. It didn't, it didn't really do what needed to be done. Uh, wh- what is your view on permitting reform and and the odds of it happening in the next Congress and and how that could could come to be? Well, uh, John, you, whenever you went through the six pillars that, that are in our commitment to America related to the to the Energy Climate and Conservation Task Force, you you said one of them, let America build. And so what that's about is it's about developing a regulatory structure that truly focuses on objectives like the environment, objectives like efficient building of projects and, and in ensuring that we have that right balance. The National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, that was enacted 50 years ago, uh, back back when it was first enacted, this was a review that took six months, maybe a year. Uh, Today, uh, we're looking at seven years, 10 years. I've seen projects sit in this uh, environmental protection uh, evaluation process for nearly 20 years. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And and it it is no longer actually focused on environmental objectives. And I'll give you a few examples. Um, back in a previous life, uh, my, my main job was, was coastal resiliency. So I was rebuilding coastal wetlands uh, that had been restored in ecological productivity. Um, we had this very process obstructing, blocking, impeding our ability to restore wetlands or restore ecological function. Uh, there were no other, no other benefits or objectives of these projects. Um, more recently, we've seen where the NEPA process has blocked or impeded 
things like transmission for renewable energy. It has blocked natural gas pipelines in areas that would actually result in lower emissions. Um, you know, heck up in the Northeast, we've seen how they've used some of the regulations to block gas pipelines, then forcing them to turn to things like home heating oil, which has much greater emissions. And in some cases, even preventing people from getting access to energy resources to heat their homes during some of the brutal winters that we've seen up there. So, 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 and, 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 and it also has blocked the deployment of renewable energy projects. And so, you know, it's really just baffling to see how these, these laws have been weaponized over decades and decades, and they're no longer focused on the very objective. And so I do think that we're going to be able to get something done next Congress. Um, and, and candidly, whether uh, it doesn't matter where you are ideologically, you cannot build the transmission needed for renewable energy. You can't build the pipelines for emission reduction, and you can't build renewable energy projects. So it doesn't matter where you are ideologically, this needs to be done. You mentioned Senator Manchin's bill, and a little irony there, and then he came in and he said, hey, we've reformed this process and it's going to be great. But then he had a second tier where you took 25 priority projects around the country and then created an entirely new environmental process or regulatory process for them. And it made me kind of scratch my head. Well, if you fixed it, why do you need a streamlined process for anyone? And then when he took his project in West Virginia, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, he just exempted it altogether. And so, you know, I think one of the questions we need to be asking ourselves is, look, if, it, if it's not a good enough reform for, for Senator Manchin, uh, like in the Mountain Valley Pipeline, is it enough of a reform for the rest of the country? Um, so I, I, I think that you're going to see reform in this area. Uh, it's got to happen. And this process has really just become weaponized and it's become fodder for litigation, blocking really important projects all across the United States. So if Republicans do take control of the House, uh, I anticipate permitting reform is going to be a, a top tier. You know, I think one of the analogies that I've heard that I think makes a lot of sense is it's it's like a kink in the hose where you can you can turn up. You can do as much as you want to do on all these other policy levers. But if you don't get that kink out, you're not going to be very effective. What are any what are some other priorities that that if you could do wave the Garrett Graves magic wand, what, what would you do besides uh, maybe two or three besides permitting reform? Yeah, so I, I think we've got to change this discussion about reducing emissions only in the United States. And I think we've got to look globally. So the two biggest things I think we've got to do, instead of staying focused on whether we we kill a certain energy technology, we've got to stay focused on emissions reduction strategies. Just like we talked about in the clean power plant, letting innovators innovate, letting markets do what they do, you're going to see greater efficiency in terms of emissions reduction uh, per, and, and cost to where you have affordable energy that's also cleaner. So I think that's number one. Let's stay focused on emissions reduction strategies, not on energy technologies. We've got to be agnostic to that. And then secondly, looking globally at emissions reduction, because many of the strategies that are being pushed by the left right now may result, may result in emissions reduction over the long term, but at an unaffordable cost, and it's going to result in global emissions actually going up. And, and I remind everybody that uh, that you can't affect just the climate in one country. It's got to be a global issue. So, so I think those are the two biggest 
things that we're working on under the six pillars that are kind of the objectives, but but we're also kind of looking at reliability, affordability, cleanliness, exportability of energy technology, and ensuring we have a secure supply chain. So, so those are the things that we're focused on, but um, really we've just got to bring more science uh, and, and more facts and data to the, to the table because this has become such an emotional issue. It's resulting in policies that are just reckless and, and, and driving American families into poverty whenever there are better solutions that would that would uh, result in American jobs, American economic activity, affordability of energy for Americans, and lower emissions. Yeah, and I think I think just to, to highlight one of your science 101 points you're, you're making, just to spell it out for, for people who aren't familiar with this debate, is when, when a lot of folks on the left talk about reducing America, like America leading the way in reducing emissions, but if they ignore the fact that that CO2 doesn't respect national borders, it's in the air, it just flows back. It's a it's a common sense point that is missed so frequently. And so you're right that that if we don't highlight the global nature, if China is is emitting, we could stop American the American economy tomorrow, and it's not gonna it's not gonna quote solve climate change. And so we we've got to have an intellectually honest uh, conversation and. And I think we've got the policies to really win the argument long term. So, All right. So we'll, we'll we'll run through some some facts here real quick, just to just to put a, a little exclamation point on it. Under the under the previous administration, emissions went down an average of two and a half percent a year. And the first year of the Biden administration, they actually went up six point three percent. So let me say that again: emissions went down an average of two and a half percent a year under the Trump administration. They've gone up six point three percent last year. They're going to go up again this year. So 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 first, let's be clear. The, the emissions reduction strategy the Biden administration is pursuing, the left is pursuing, it is not working. It has been unsuccessful. Number two, it's resulted in unaffordable energy, pushing people into energy poverty. Number three, while the United States has led the world up until uh, recent years in the 2020 or so, in, in, in we've led the world in reducing emissions. During the time we've led the world, for every one ton of emissions we've reduced, China's increased by four. And so, you know, it goes to your point of we've got to stay focused globally and what's happening right now is not working. The last point is that people like John Kerry have been out there celebrating these Paris climate accords. But 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 today, China releases more than uh, virtually all of the EU, Japan, South Korea combined, the United States combined. And under the Paris Accords, they're going to increase another 50% between now and 2030. So, so we're not we're not headed in the right direction. These climate strategies that are out there being touted by the left are actually resulting in greater emissions, and they're making other economies more competitive. Uh, even the Russian oil ban, the way that it's been implemented, has resulted in China getting Russian oil at a lower price than virtually anywhere else in the globe is paying uh, Russian energy has higher emissions per unit of energy. So, so you've made China's economy more competitive, greater emissions, and you're giving more money to Vladimir Putin than he was making before the Ukraine invasion. Like, what, what, what positive outcome is this? It's just over and over and over again, strategies are being told, the American people are being told the strategies are helpful and working. When you look at the facts, the science, the data, it shows a very different story. Well, well, well said, Congressman. So we'd love to have you back on. Uh, next year, hopefully, when uh, when the, you're you're in the majority, and we'll we'll get a progress report on some of these some of these issues. Be uh, so great. Thank, yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, again, I'm John Hart with C3 Solutions. You can follow us at c3newsmag.com. And uh, we've been with Congressman Garrett Graves. Thanks, Chuck.